Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Um, that is a name I've got to get used to saying. I know. We've said elder talk now for, what? Years. Five plus years. So now, uh, just to repeat for those of you who aren't familiar, you think maybe we dumped this other show, we've created a new show. It's actually the same show. But we came up with a title that we think is more descriptive of what, what this is about. Um, so it's about all those things that pertain to your maximizing the quality of your life to assuring that the last third of your life is the best it could possibly be. Those are the topics we're going to be talking about on this show, which it turns out that there's, you know, five to 10 topics that you tend to hear about a lot, or I should say broad subjects. And within that, a bunch of different topics that we do return to because we know that they're fundamental to this, this period in your life. And one of those is estate planning. We haven't talked about estate planning in a while. No. No. So it's good we're circling back to it. Yeah. And part of it is because Missy wasn't able to be with us for a while. So now we have Missy Manning, Mm -hmm. which uh, Missy was a regular guest. She's a a senior attorney, um, and she was on the show regularly. She hasn't been on for a while, but thankfully she's on now. And this is the first time you've done the video with us. Correct. Okay. We're so glad to have you back. Yes. I'm excited to be here. So, um... What we want to do today is talk about a real-life thing in the news that some of you will have some familiarity with, some of you may not. But I want to to start off by making clear to you there's a very, very direct connection, a very clear learning opportunity here, though this case involves, you know, the rich and sometimes the famous. And so when we talk about these, we'll often grab things out of the news. So often these people are rich or famous or both. In this case, I guess, more rich than famous. But... Um, we wouldn't do this, um, except we, unless we felt that it was beneficial to you. Now there is something voyeuristic in all of us where we do like this topic. So I I admit, yeah, I didn't worry that, that you would think it wasn't interesting. I worried that you might think, but how's this relevant to me? And, and be assured we're going to connect it to you and to, to people uh, that, are in, in this situation in general, often middle class for the most part, people who have some assets. If you don't have any assets, then yeah, it's hard to go too wrong on many state yeah. estate planning issues. But but for people who have some assets, these lessons you learn from these, these cases often do have application. So that's the reason we're covering it. Um, who's going to give us the initial overview? Is it you, Jill, or are you, Missy? I Missy? Shall I do the honors? Okay. Well, ju- just do the the 30,000 foot, and then we'll let Missy sort of give more detail. Okay. okay. Sounds good. Uh, we're talking about Richard Robertson. He was the CEO of Scholastic. We all know Scholastic. Um, Some published- may not. But, but it, the publisher of, I'm sure they'd recognize the brands, uh, Clifford, The Big Red Dog, The Magic School Bus, Hunger Games. Hunger Games, yeah, yeah that was yeah. huge. Right. I remember Clifford, my kids used to watch that. Uh, they fanatical about watching those I, I cartoons. I read the books. I loved Clifford. And now they've got the movie coming out that I have to see. So, I mean, we're talking many millions of dollars here. And what was the other... Um, uh, Harry, Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. That must have been worth a mint. Absolutely it was. So so this was the publisher for those things, and I guess they have certain literary rights. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and Richard, actually his father Maurice started the company. Um, this company is over a century old. So Richard has been, you know, the CEO for uh, years, and he died suddenly back in June. He was taking a walk in Martha's Vineyard and left a surprising succession plan. A but cool, why, he had a heart attack or something? Heart Must attack, have... stroke, something so, something okay. of that nature. and. Um, died suddenly last June, um, and according to family members, blindsided by the will um, because he didn't leave it to his two sons or even his brother or ex-wife who at one time was in the company. She, she founded, worked in the company. She founded this early childhood program, and they and I should mention they uh, rekindled a friendship during the pandemic. And we're very close. And supposedly she was with him when he died. But anyway, so he leaves this succession plan to Ioli Lucchese. Who is she? She's the chief strategy officer, been with the company for 30 years. Also important to mention, longtime girlfriend of Robinson. And younger. Much younger. She's 53. He was 84 years old. And uh, she's worked for the company 30 years. So... She started with the company, you know, in her 20s, worked her way up the ladder. And so the family is now challenging it. Uh, not only did uh, he leave con- her voting shares, control of the company, but his personal possessions. And, you know, the last time we talked about this subject on the show, I said this. I said, I, I don't really believe that the family was that blindsided because the sons— Ben and Reese. Ben has a sawmill. Reese is a filmmaker. Never worked in the company. Neither son. Neither son. No. And so I I don't understand how they were really blindsided. Is that your perception? I agree with you. I, I think that there's something a little off here when the older son says he had never spoken to Ioli, um, until after his dad passed away. That is really, really amazing because mm. that just shows what little involvement he had with the company. But but yet it seemed to come as a shock to certain family members. I mean, on the one hand, you're right. He has this, I guess, open relationship with this woman um, and apparently gone on for a decade plus. And she'd been at the company for many, right. for three decades almost. But he still had a friendship with his ex-wife, right? But that was a recent development that started during the pandemic. So I'm not saying the relationship was sour before that, but they rekindled a friendship is what we were told. And and the latest development happened, Missy, what, in November, when the sons responded to a summons from Ioli Lucchese's attorneys. Mm Mm-hmm. But but wait now let let me let me clarify something though that I think is a distinction that needs to be made. Um, I agree with you that the the sons who uh, they did have I think a good relationship with their dad. We're not to believe that they were alienated, are we? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, it's really kind of hard to say. the The fact that the son never met. Well, the that's not that shocking though. Why? I mean, well, because. You know, maybe dad didn't want to put the girlfriend in front of the boys, but but plus this big age difference, you know, he probably felt yeah. some discomfort. But but either way, here's my point is that 
even if let's assume they had that somewhat of a cordial relationship and maybe even a very good relationship. Um, they weren't involved in the company. So I don't think that the shock was that they were not in control. I think the shock was that the ownership shares, which was closed, is going to, in effect, put her, I think, over 50% control of the company, uh, that the ownership goes to her. Uh, I understand that, that you know, when you're choosing somebody who is to succeed in terms of being a CEO or comparable positions, that shouldn't be shocking because the boys didn't know that. But, but for the boys to find out that they were disinherited, that's a, that, those are two different subjects. The boys should not expect to have control of the company, you know, any sort of operational control. But to disinherit is uh, what was shocking. Well, are you referring to the personal possessions? Well, no. I mean, a large part of the stock went to her. Right. Okay. I mean, and it's not as if, I, when I say dispossession, I'm not, I don't want to suggest that, that he deliberately left nothing, but he left a very small percentage of his total assets to his phys- his biological family, I'll say, and his, we'll exclude his ex-wife, so his children, and, and he gave the bulk of the assets to her in addition to the control. So that that's what, what I find a little surprising. Not that he wouldn't uh, have give place the boys in control of the company, but that he would take the value of the assets and give it to someone else. Okay. Because you'd think when you have children, you want your children to enjoy the fruits of your labor. And like I have, you know, I have a daughter who's going to medical school. Let's assume she goes off and has nothing to do with Cordell and Cordell ever. But as long as we have any relationship at all, maybe if we had no relationship, um, I would I would want her to have income or money value from from what Cordell and Cordell is or or any other investments I have. And and so that's a distinction worth making. The difference between, you know, should the boys be in charge? Of course not. But should they not get any assets? Right. Didn't they get something else? They did like get stock. something. Got, what was it? I, I thought they just got like some financial accounts. Um, nothing substantial, but, you know, like they got something. They did get something. You're right. Right, right. Okay. But there was also this that um, the family claims that uh, Robinson borrowed money from the mother, Helen Benham, the, the kid's mother, his ex-wife. And there was some sort of agreement at that time to, in exchange for borrowing this money, that voting shares would go to the sons. But apparently it's not in, you know, the will or the estate. Um, there was also, they said the the father was in the process of making a new will before he died. But that doesn't matter because the will wasn't made, right? So that wouldn't even... Would... Uh, so there was no will in place at his death. Is that your understanding? There was an older will. So 2018. Been... Yeah. So it was valid. Mm-hmm. At least from what we can tell, it sounds like the sons may be trying to challenge that will. Um, but from what we can see, it seems valid on its face. and It hasn't been thrown out yet. But they're saying he was in the family claims that Richard Robinson was in the process of making a new will before he died. So they're trying to say that the 2018 will wasn't his final wishes. But it doesn't matter because that will was never created, right? Am I the new will? The new will that he they say he was going to make. Yeah, but it never happened. And and you can speak a little bit to that. And also talk about this whole idea of the surprise. 
because it's one thing to do what you want to do, which we all can do that with our state planning. Um, but it's another thing to decide that you're not going to let anybody in on it and you're going to let them all have a big surprise uh, as if it's, you know, I don't want Christmas morning. That doesn't work. But anyway, <laughs> as a, a big surprise when you go and let them deal with it. And I think that's part of what explains people often don't want to have unpleasant conversations. So, you know, clients will sometimes say, well, when we get together over Thanksgiving, the family will all be there. I'll, I'll explain this. Or at some family event, they, they plan to do it. They always notoriously, they chicken out. Well, sure. And so it, the conversation never happens. And, and maybe if Richard Robertson could have sat down and explained his reasons, it's not, that, it's not important that people like it or agree with it, but it might head off the litigation. So um, talk a little bit about how this train went off the track and then talk about kind of the litigation now that appears to be on the horizon. Everybody is, what's the phrase, lawyered up? Yep. Okay, so talk a little bit about some lessons here. Okay, well, obviously the biggest lesson is you should talk about what your estate plan is going to be if it will be surprising. However, that's a hard pill to swallow for many clients who just finally work up the nerve to make a change themselves. Uh, having to talk about it with a child or a significant other can be very upsetting, and I could see why they may not want to bring that up over Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas dinner in order to prevent a fight. Some of our clients just believe that they're dead, it's someone else's problem, yeah. which is yeah. a shame because you want to have things be tidied up when you pass away and not leave loose ends everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's a shame that it's working out like this because no matter who's right or who's wrong, both sides are going to fight it out in court spending thousands upon thousands of dollars in legal fees. And I'm sure that's really not what Richard wanted. And, and he could he not have uh, fortified his plan if his plan is what, what this will said in 18? And that's what the court's going to assume since, you know, the idea that you have an intention to create a will mm -hmm. has no legal significance. Those of you who think that if you mention that you're going to do something that maybe somebody will remember to state that under oath after you die, but legally that has no significance. So there's all sorts of formalities to doing estate planning, and those formalities are for a reason because the person whose assets are at stake uh, that are being divided up as is in the most uh, vulnerable position we can imagine, which is horizontal, six feet under the ground. Yeah. So, so there, there's all sorts of opportunity for mischief. So the courts are very strict about formalities. That's a reason oral conversations, except under the most extreme circumstances, will never stand up. And I think, um, what is it called when you're on the threshold of death? There's a there's an except. There are a few really bizarre situations where you can, for example, in handwriting, you can write out certain conditions of a will that wouldn't meet the normal requirements. Um, there's even a, in some states regarding some types of assets, there can be an oral statement if it's in anticipation of death that a gift is made. And, and the law makes that opening because um, if, you're, if you're on the threshold of death, then it's not realistic maybe you're in a battle scene and that's a classic situation perhaps is at war and where people might give personal things but most state statutes as i recall don't allow you to give real estate that way but but the purpose was to help these these boys uh who were were you know maybe in france fighting and they might 
you know, being a foxhole and, and they're dying and they have certain wishes and they want personal things to go to somebody. So many states carved out an exception. Okay. Uh, but you have to actually die of the thing that you fear you're about to die of. Uh, there's case law on this. So if you recover, if you give something away under these circumstances, you recover, it's invalid. Thank, m- most of people say thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, so in this case, um, because there was a will in place, we know what we'll assume that's what he wanted. He could have strengthened that. He could have, couldn't he have had a meeting with the family members? Could he not have videotaped? Yes, he certainly could. I've heard mixed things about videotaping, though. It could Talk be helpful in some types. Um, in some ways, it might be very useful to have a client sitting there dressed up, ready to go, speaking respectfully and concisely into, uh, you know, like the microphone. In some cases, it's actually more hurtful. Oh, dad doesn't look very good. Was he sick at this time? Did he slur his words there or was he just nervous? Was he under undue influence? I've, yes. Was he under medications? Right. So it's not always a clear slam dunk to do videotaping. I know some um, attorneys will do that, but that is not our practice over at Tucker Allen. Uh, we just ask a lot of questions to get down to the issues instead of videotaping. Now, do you mm-hmm. ever have your clients in a situation like this, say, write a letter to be given to family members that weren't included in a will or an estate? Do they? Do clients ever do that? Clients certainly can do that. We generally don't recommend that they do something like that because the whole point of having a will is to have all of your intentions stated in there. And if you're not stating something, there's a reason why you're not stating it. Okay. I I meant just as an explanation to that loved one. But they do have to acknowledge that that loved one exists, like say a son or daughter. Correct. And you say something, reasons only known to me. Is that normally how it works? That's one of them. Also, we say, um, I leave to my daughter nothing but my love or something like that, that, you know, like makes them know that you still love them, but you're not giving them any financial possessions. And it tells the court that you didn't forget about them. You That's consciously, yeah, made that decision. And now I see, I see your point about video. Um, video is, is something that if it comes off right, like you were saying, if a if a client looks good, you know, everything appears solid and and unquestionable. But if you have a client, as you often do, who tends to be a little frail, tends to be a little inarticulate, maybe could be a little confused. And, you know, if you somebody else shows up on the camera who's in the room, that may have driven them there. That's always a, a, a somebody who's vulnerable to being accused of undue influence. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you can be hoisted by your petard, so to speak, if you decide to create a video because it could actually, as you, you said very well, it becomes evidence against mm-hmm. against the client's lucidity. Mm-hmm. And another thing about stating reasons you're doing stuff is among the ways in which there's undue influence by people who are close in the statutes, and you can talk about a few of these things so people will know to, to be sure and protect those around them from this accusation like this woman I know is going to to doubtlessly be um, accused of having undue influence. And undue influence is something that exists in every state, and it's a basis for undoing a, a will or a trust. Right. So if, if there's somebody who was in a position to, there are various criteria, help me with this, Missy. Uh, one is that somebody was in a position mm-hmm. to have undue, so there had to be opportunity, like they lived with you, they were a caregiver, what are some other criteria? I don't remember off the top of uh, my head. 
uh, undue influence. Let me think for a minute. So it would also be somebody who profits disproportionately. Mm -hmm. That was one of the criteria. Somebody who profits disproportionately. So somebody's not likely to get accused if they're getting the amount they would otherwise get. But it's always somebody such as this woman. What's her name? Ioli Lucchese. Ioli. I love it. So it's um, Ioli is the one who's ending up with, we'll call it 90% of the estate. So that's definitely disproportional. And she wasn't a wife. Um, She was a girlfriend over a period of time, a lot younger. But at least this relationship had gone on for a long time. So... uh, some of the elements are there, mm-hmm. but you would hope that when, when the estate planning was done in 18, it's going to be interesting to know um, who drove him there, who paid for it. These are details that that courts look at if your estate planning is going to be challenged because somebody was left out or somebody felt like they got short shrift. Um, those are red flags. So the bottom line is that that you want to set it up, and he could have set this up to where – I'm reluctant to call it bulletproof, but he could have made this 2018 document very hard to attack. Is there? Can you think of anything else he might have done to strengthen that state plan? Are they sure. uh, will? So it's called um, sometimes an interim clause or a disinheritance uh, clause, mm-hmm. where if either of the boys contested his will and said that she unduly influenced him or he lacked capacity to make that will at that time, then they would lose their share of the inheritance in there, which was, I know, not a lot, but they would lose out on whatever they were entitled to. Isn't that also called a no contest clause? Yeah. Okay. Many words. Is there one in this, in the, in that will, I wonder, does anybody know? I don't know if we, we haven't, we don't, I didn't see it. We haven't seen the will, so we don't know. And I haven't seen the terms published anywhere. No. I will say they are very hard to have a court enforce. They will look for any possible legal way around it just because they like to see money going where it was planned to go and people to exercise their rights without fear of retribution. But if written out properly and well done, it would be enforced. It's just it's hard to get to that end point. Yeah. What if... It, it turns out, and and they're able to prove this, that Lucchese took him to have this, these the will and the estate drawn up. Could that, you know, be bad on her? Would that make her? I wouldn't say that by itself mm-hmm. was wrong. Right. Some things that may have jumped out more if this was a situation where they had met very recently. Um, or she has a history of doing this and she's like a black widow with like three previous instances of this and she just does this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, you can, it's... Caregivers it's, are a big one. Yeah, but oh, she yeah. seems like a woman with a good reputation. She's been with this company for 30 years, worked very hard, had a key position in the company. So we're not talking like... Um, Who's the woman, the blonde that uh, married the oh, 90... Oh, in Texas? Yeah. Um, oh. Not uh, Van. I mean, she was... Anna Nicole Smith. Oh, yeah. Yes. There was that whole situation. So we're not talking about an Anna Nicole Smith. You know, she's no. a very intelligent woman with a good reputation. So, you, yeah, right. You can't say that. And they've been together for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I don't want to make too much, though, of of those those signs that they might regard as indicia of undue influence because it doesn't mean that those factors are always a problem. Like if, if for example, he's clearly in full control of his 
capacities if he's a man in charge and and so maybe she comes with him to do the estate planning in other words i don't want to make too much of that fact right usually that fact isn't doesn't come in circumstances where this guy is lee coco or something at the height of his powers usually it's a diminished guy who you know he's no longer as self-confident and self-reliant and and so she's kind of taking over the company and usually there are other factors that suggest that he's vulnerable. Um, if she makes the appointment for it, you kind of wonder about that. It does look like she's nudging him along. So those are the sort of things that people look for when they're alleging undue influence. Yeah. And he was still running the company. He was still CEO. So I don't think anybody could say, oh, there was cognitive impairment, signs of dementia. I wouldn't think. Yeah. It'd be a hard uphill battle, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And then there's this thing called um, fraud in the inducement, which fraud in the inducement means that, uh, as the word induce means to get somebody to, to sign a document, to sign a will, for example. Fraud in the inducement is where somebody, will say hypothetically, Ioli, uh, that she were to have said to him that his son said bad things about him, that his son was determined to, you know, liquidate the company. And, and the danger where, where sometimes that can be alleged is if you do this video and in order to defend someone's decisions, say that this man wants to, to make clear that Richardson wants to make clear that this is something premeditated that he really wanted to do. So he gives his reasons. And it turns out that one of those reasons isn't true. So then suddenly... You know, is it, it's probably fraud in the inducement, undue influence, uh, various things are going on. But but interestingly enough, in his effort to make clear that he knew what he is doing and why he did it, he may, he needs to be sure the reasons he give are, gives are not, if he's going to give reasons, which as you point out, sometimes it's not a good idea to give reasons. But if he's going to give reasons, he needs to be sure they're not wrong. Or if if they are wrong, that he needs to be sure they didn't come from this other person that's being accused um, so, uh, I, I mean, fraud can occur in various ways. Undue influence is always a, uh, is the primary source of attack. I suspect that if we read the pleadings in this litigation that we're going to hear that phrase thrown around, thrown around a whole lot. Uh, but you just wonder, had there been a sit down with the family and prepared them for this, could this have been headed off? And I wonder, what should we predict? Are we going to predict that Aoli is going to conclude it's in her interest to do a deal, which is often what happens in these cases. Uh, when you, th- Even if you're in the right, if you think it's going to be long and ugly and expensive and drawn you may out. lose. Yeah, long and drawn out. Yeah, and you may lose. Um, then you, there's an incentive to settle. And incidentally, on the no contest clause, if there is a no contest clause, it's not unusual to have that. I don't know this particular state, what it is. New York but I don't know what New York is. But many states will have a provision where they'll interpret a no-contest clause or the explicit language of the statute will be that if it if you prevail on, for example, you sue, you challenge it, but you challenge it for undue influence and you prevail. So if you prevail, then the interim clause is regarded as being invalid. So it's a danger, though, if you launch it, some courts will say, and maybe this is what you were suggesting too, is that if they think you acted in good faith, 
even if it may not be a winning argument, if it's a good faith argument, they they really hate as you, to to emphasize what you were saying. They really hate to have people um, shut down from exercising or bringing a legitimate claim to the court. And if someone legitimately thought the will was invalid, but but they were getting something, uh, but they knew that they could get you know completely wiped out of the will, then they may not bring a legitimate claim. So somebody who's engaged in undue influence gets off the hook mm-hmm. with interim clauses, no contest clauses. Um, if there's if it's not interpreted to permit somebody if they have a good faith argument or if they just prevail. Correct. So it can be quite a pickle for a judge to try and navigate that. Oftentimes they will parse out the language in a no contest clause in such a way where it would not be effective. It's not surprising or they avoid ruling on that issue until the very end if there are no other issues that they could um, throw something out on. What kind of impact will this have on the company if they decide to fight it out? You know, just keep duking it out. I mean, how this could really, I, I imagine, hinder the company. Significantly. Because she's got the controlling shareholder interest. So if that is wrapped up in court who the, without a primary shareholder to vote for things, can they even move forward with anything? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So, I, I mean, I imagine, this is my thought, um, they're going to settle this. Well, but, there, yeah, there's a whole lot of pressure to settle it. I, you're right. There mm-hmm. is. And, but in the meantime, is the legal mechanism that, that the personal representative, this is the person who, anytime that there's a will, even if there's not a will, I guess, that the court will appoint somebody to be in charge of, you know, gathering, marshalling the assets, gathering them together, keeping an accounting of them, deciding who gets what. That's called the personal representative. So a personal representative has a lot of power, even though they have to report to the court, they still have a lot of power. I wonder if the personal representative, which may have been appointed already, I wonder if they would have authority to to vote those shares or to uh, make any decisions as a shareholder on behalf of the deceased to keep things functioning? I believe they went to court and got some sort of court order saying that Ioli can vote the shares of the company. However, that doesn't mean that the company is in the clear because if it turns up being that the will is invalid and then she was voting with shares that weren't valid, and that could be a huge problem on the books. Hmm. So uh, this is kind of a temporary order or an interim order. I would assume so. It doesn't really go into details, but if well, they the got cases. a court order, at least they have something to get by on right now. But it it's still, I imagine, very much a problem over at Scholastic. Yeah, and on kind of a thematic level, it's good for you to know that judges want the estate, whatever it is, to not deteriorate or decline in value. It's in their interest to be sure that that assets' values go up rather than down and that the whether it's creditors who, are, who lose out or whether it's the, the beneficiaries, the bottom line is it's in the state and everyone else's interest to have assets preserved when somebody dies. So the court is going to participate to assure that someone's in charge to make decisions so that assets just don't melt away. And that, that could very easily happen when you have a business that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. I have a legal 101 question. Okay. What, again, is the reason 
of having both a trust and a will? So a trust, anything that the trust owns, think of it like a basket. Sure. Anything in the basket of the trust avoids probate because the trust doesn't die. Therefore, there's no probate to go through ever with something owned by a trust. We always include a will called a pour-over will, like you're pouring something out of a glass, just as a backup in case you forget to put something into the basket that's your trust. So your pour-over will says, if you have something that's just in your name and not in the trust, your will says it goes into your trust for you and your trust takes care of it from there. So that will will never have to go to probate because it's in conjunction with the trust? So you would use the will if there was something that wasn't put into your trust. For example, a car. Lots of people go out and buy a car after they've set up their trust already, and they title it in their name, and they forget to check the box that says transfer on death. So that way when they pass away, that car was just in their name. There's no beneficiary on it. That car would have to go through probate, and that pour-over will would come into play. And it says that car will go into the trust, and then the trust takes over once it's in the trust. And the trust says, we're going to give it to the grandchild, or we're going to give it to the child, or we're going to sell it, or whatever the plan is in the trust. Do we know if there was a trust? Surely there was a trust. I mean, people on this level. It says will in here. And I, I was know. Very no, it was will and too. a trust. It was okay. a will and a, a trust. I was starting was to say, the... this guy, I mean, even even our, when you have lower middle class clients, I'm tempted to say clients that would even be considered lower class in, in terms of income. Um, maybe we don't have as many of those because some people in that group don't, don't do planning. But Tucker Allen has a lot of people who would be considered mid-tier incomes. Virtually all of them do trust, don't they? I would say about 90 to 95% of our clients do trust. So I can't imagine that that somebody... So we, we, we're confident there's a trust. According to the, the news articles, Wall Street Journal, yes, there was a will and a trust. Okay. So I wonder... So tell me what you're guessing happened. Are you guessing that, that, that the, the valuable assets were all in the trust? I'm assuming so, that he properly funded his trust with all of his assets, and that will was only in play if he forgot to put something into his trust. Yeah, and explain a little bit about how that happens. Um, I guess it's a good way to follow up on what you've already said. So the mechanics, in this case, he had a bunch of shares of stock mm-hmm. that he wanted, and he I guess he would be the trustee, would have been the trustee initially. Usually, yes. You put yourself as trustee. So speculate about how that went down. Okay, so um, when I say trustee, a trustee is kind of like the manager of the trust and makes the decisions to buy things and sell things. So when you set up an estate plan, typically you're your own trustee while you're alive and you have capacity. So you would go and you would see all of your assets, for example, these shares of stock, and you would want them to be transferred upon your death into the trust. Uh, Transferred upon death, or do you you think he went ahead and transferred them? He might have outright transferred them. It kind of depends upon Scholastic and what their policy is with the business. They may prefer things for their CEO to stay in the CEO's name just for clarity purposes, but yeah. you never really know what their bylaws are. Yeah, sometimes there are security laws and whatnot, but it doesn't change, though. I want people to understand that the general rule is what you were saying a while ago is the general rule is to put all your assets in your trust. It's very simple. You change titles like you are describing. Mm-hmm. So that's the general rule. There are sometimes cases where there might be securities laws. Um, in this case, there may be conditions attached to these shares, so to where he could only have had, you know, had a beneficiary clause 
as to who's to get it when he dies, which in that case, that's what you're saying. You would list mm-hmm. the trust. Correct. So then the shares automatically went in the trust the moment he died. But um, and then if it, if it's deferred compensation stuff like 401k money, those sorts of things or assets, those generally explain why you don't normally put those immediately in the trust. So generally, there are laws in place that require you to own something like that in your individual name. So like your 401k, you as the worker must own that account with those wages. That's ERISA law or IRS law. Something like, like that. Yeah. It, yeah. That. IRS is all over that one. So mm-hmm. you can't put something like that into the basket. That is your trust. You have to have it say the beneficiary of it is the trust. So once you pass away, it automatically pays out to the trust. And we still count that as your trust owning it and being in the basket and all that stuff because it happens automatically and instantaneously upon your death. Yeah. And especially keep in mind, automatic, instantaneous. Uh, it's not including any probate. The judge isn't involved with that. Um, it's not, it's not will assets. Will assets are things that were not in the trust. Those are the things that you left out of the trust. In this case, these assets were out of the trust until that, that second in time when you passed away and you had already signed a provision that just instantaneously dumped it into the trust. No, it didn't go through probate. So it's not in something that the judges that we've been talking about here is trying to decide. Now, if there was a lawsuit brought, though, that there was undue influence, I mean, a trust is not immune. A trust is a little harder to get money out of that way, which one of the reasons trusts are great. But they're by no means uh, are they are they immune to an allegation that there was undue influence and whatnot. So it's still vulnerable in that way. And I assume that that's all being challenged, whether those shares are in the trust right now, as I suspect they are. I would think so. Um, that makes the most logical sense. I can't imagine that. Yeah. He left it and, out of his trust. And she is likely, I'm speculating, but she's likely Aola, the the trustee. She's co-trustee with um someone else on the board. I can't remember if it was oh, another really? CEO or something like that. So we know this. Yes. So she is co-trustee and I believe co-personal representative. Hmm. Ah. Which is what we call executor nowadays. Right. Yeah. So she, I wonder who the co is. You said somebody on the board? Someone yeah, on the board. someone else from Scholastic. But not a family member. Not a family no. member. Huh. L- hmm. I want to get back to the situation where the family members claimed that there was this deal. And I, we're to only assume it was verbal. Uh, where Helen Benham, the ex-wife, the kid's mom, lent him this money in exchange that he would give the son's voting shares. Okay. Obviously, it's not in the trust. I, I I can't imagine that it is, but let's assume it's not. But say there were 10 witnesses that heard this. Does that make any difference to where they can challenge this? No. So we have this thing called the statute of frauds that says that generally if there's some sort of contract or goods valued over a certain amount of money, which is like $500 or something really yeah. low, depending upon where, you know, it varies state by state, that says that if it's not in writing, then it's not enforceable. So, I mean, like, I could pretend like you had told me 10 years ago that you were going to give me your house when you died. I did, didn't I? So (laughs) I could just show up and make that claim. Right. No one's going to believe me without it being in writing. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing about this whole area of law, especially more than most area of the laws, is that it, it really has very developed very cynically 
about human nature, observing human nature over literally a thousand years. These laws, people will even see a trial quoted, like the rule in Caroline's case, or, I mean, there's so many um, precedents that date back to like 1400 or so. I, much of our estate planning law finds its origins, its roots in British law, and much of that is feudal. So it goes way back wow. and, and it's gotten very cynical. So like, like the point you raised, you know, some pri- I bet by the time they got to the 16th century, they had figured out, you know, when dead people are said to have said something orally, you know, committed, no, nah, we're not going to accept that. So yeah. huh. even if you line up five witnesses. Okay. So uh, I do think that she's in a pretty strong position as a trustee and if she's a, a co-personal representative. So um, uh, it's it, there's going to be a lot of money spent. And what's interesting about that is often the money that's spent on both sides of the table often ends up coming out of the funds that are in the trust. Right. Correct. Certainly whatever whatever the personal representative spends will be money. I mean, what if, if she spends $10 million defending this, she's not going to pay $10 million. It's going to come out of the— and And similarly, assuming it's legitimate— that's a judge has some discretion, but but if family members have a legitimate, uh, it's called a colorable claim, uh, then there's a good, very good chance those funds too are going to be paid out of the estate as well. So that's another reason to try to get your ducks in a row, is so that you don't end up having duck stew, with uh, and everything being consumed by people litigating. And so they, they litigate through money that you intended to be sending your grandchildren to college on. Okay, so why don't we wrap up with you um, thinking about what we've talked about as it applies to uh, your typical clients um, at, at Tucker Allen. What, what do you think are the, the main lessons here? Let's do a five critical things. What, what is it? Is it Johnny Carson that used to do the 10 most... 10 something. What is that, Justin? You're too young. You weren't even born. Do you remember a guy? <laughs> there was a guy called Johnny Carson. Love Johnny show. Carson. Anyway. Man. So give us some walkaways. Okay. Well, the first thing is people disinherit family members all the time. Families are not always big, warming, welcoming things. Um, stuff happens. So it's mm-hmm. not uncommon for people to be disinherited, but there are ways to go about doing it that make it less conflict prone and more likely that things will go smoothly after your passing. One of the big ones is to put an explanation out there to whoever you are disinheriting as a way to smooth the road. And so maybe, it's not may, a shock. Are you talking about maybe like even a face-to-face meeting? Sure, It doesn't have be to be great. in writing. Yeah. Great, just to tell them, hey, we haven't gotten along for years. You're still my kid. I still love you, but I'm not going to give you any money when I pass. I know that's a hard thing to say. There's ways to sugarcoat it and make it sound better. But telling someone up front can save hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills on the back end. Yeah. It at least will wipe out that situation where the person brings the action genuinely believing that their deceased loved one was a victim of manipulation, et cetera. So at least, you know, if it's presented properly, it'll eliminate that. Now, if you're if your son or daughter is still prone to being mischievous, then maybe they'll still bring a lawsuit. But I would I would say at least half of these cases are bona fide, maybe more than half, probably 75%, where they really believe 
that there was something that their loved one was deceived, that their deceased mother or father was somehow manipulated or deceived. And you hugely reduce that, the conversation you described. Correct. Okay, go ahead. Another takeaway is that if we are going to disinherit someone, there are things you can do to reduce chances of litigation on the other end. So an interim clause is one way we can go about doing that. That's the no contest clause. There are other things we can do. Um, For example, in Missouri, no one can get a copy of your trust unless they're named as an income beneficiary. So if you don't name the person in the will or trust at all, sorry, only to trust, they don't get a copy of the trust, so they don't know about anything, and it's very hard for them to sue if they don't have a copy of the trust. Uh, Unlike a will. So wills Correct. are public because they have to are filed in probate. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason we right. all know what everybody's will. We know how, what Howard Hughes' will was. He had a will, right? I think he did. But anyway, so everybody, anybody's had a will that's filed, the, it's open for the public to go examine it. Whereas, you're right, trust, one of the huge virtues of trust. Matter of fact, the sole motivation for some people to do a trust is the privacy. Mm-hmm. So that would cut off access to information. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. That is helpful. Uh, but you mentioned the interim clause. Uh, while we talked it down a little bit, do we suggest clients do it? Yes. I mean, while it, it you know, don't take it for granted that, that it's impermeable, still, is it often helpful? Yeah, it often is. It often, if it's a close call at all, someone will often back off. Correct. But in order for it to work, they have to be giving them something. Correct. You should mention that. So there's two different schools of thought. One school of thought was that You would give someone something and put in the interim clause. So you get $100,000, and then if you decide to sue and say, I lacked capacity or I was unduly influenced, you lose that $100,000. So that was that school of thought. The other school of thought is don't give them anything at all and don't put them in there at all. So that way they don't get any sort of copy of the trust. They don't know anything about it. What's $100,000 to them if they're going to be getting half half a billion, I guess? So they can put it, though, in the will, like you could have an interim clause in a will, which usually when you have a trust, you also have a will just as a safety valve in the event that something wasn't in the trust. Mm-hmm. So you could put it in the will, and, and, but I like, I like the first point, and that's where if you're going to use a no contest clause saying don't, don't come after the trust or the will, then uh, you can actually give them something so that they know they're losing it. If, if, if you're going to wipe them out completely and give them nothing, then by definition, interim clause is, is worthless because they have nothing to fear. Uh, so if you want to put in a no contest clause, which I, I'm a fan of no contest clause, be sure and give them enough. And you're right. It's got to be enough to where it's going to be an incentive. It couldn't, if there's 10, if there's in this case, how many, 500 million? If there's 500 right. million at stake and you offer them $100,000, that's not going to do it. No. But, but if if you're willing to give them like five million to back away, then and and then have an interim clause, that produces a real dilemma. Correct. Because I mean, though though they may still be able to bring an action without suffering the loss of the five million, don't make too much of our arguments. We don't want you to think that judges blow them off. They don't blow them off. They just. They try to to not let them slam shut legitimate cases if they can, you know, legitimate uh, challenges. Correct. So, all right. So you've named three or four. Those were all good ones. What other? What else would you add? Um, getting a plan in place in advance. I know that it sounds really silly, but just 
getting a trust in place, if you have an issue like this where you're going to disinherit someone, getting a trust in place is a great first step instead of just not having a trust in place or having nothing in place at all and you're relying upon just the state statute. Because if you want to disinherit someone, what you want, unless it's in writing in some sort of an estate plan, it's not going to be enforced. So just really basic step one is get a will or a trust, preferably a trust if you're going to disinherit. Yeah, and and by having a trust in place, um, you really do make it harder for some reasons we've talked about, but it's just harder to to challenge something that may have been in place and operating since 2018. And 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 this this case today is a good example. A will, okay, the will was created in 2018. But it's not really done anything. So you can't say that that oh, they've been he's lived with this will every day and's been conscious of it and has been acting out this will, you know, the, this plan he has in his will. He's clearly demonstrated that he was serious and understood it because he's been doing it the last 4 3 years. You can't say that about a will because wills you write and you put up on a shelf and you don't think about anymore. A trust operates, and that means that there's a trustee. It means he was opening bank accounts in the name of that trust. He was signing documents in the name of that trust. Yeah, it's Uh, active. It's moving. Yeah, he was living it. So it's hard to argue that somehow he was duped or he didn't know what he signed that day because, you know, he continued to sort of, it's like he affirmed it every day. So he affirmed it for the next 900 days, if we're talking about, you know, three, a thousand three years days. or yeah. whatever, right? So just having a trust in place really makes it harder to to challenge it when somebody dies than, than it is for them to challenge a will. It's just much harder. Anything else we would add? Those are good points. Probably five points. Anything I mean, else? I feel like we covered pretty, pretty darn well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love this sort of thing because it's uh, in part because I just— you know, I'm curious. What, it's what's juicy going on. stuff. I love it. It uh, is very good. This was an interesting one. All right. Good. This has been another episode of Life's Last Chapter. Third Act. Okay. <laughs> Life's Third Act. Um, we hope this has been helpful. It's been entertaining to us. And I hope it was to you. Anyway, till next time, take care. Thank you, Missy. You've been listening to Life's Third Act a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.